Welcome back to the Cornhusker State's fastest growing cash crop and the only one Warren Buffett has considered acquiring for his portfolio, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. Well, today we'll be talking with guest conductor Thomas Wilkins, and in addition to being the Music Director Laureate of the Omaha Symphony, among many other posts, Maestro Wilkins is the Artistic Advisor for Education and Community Engagement and Germishhausen Youth and Family Concerts Conductor of the Boston Symphony. That title is a mouthful, and I, I thought that the Kansas City Symphony's Woman City Club Charitable Foundation Young Artist Competition was a really tongue-twisting thing to say, so <laughs> I would hate to, hate to think of what that looks like on a uh, business card, but Thomas Sounds like a man who speaks my language. I'm excited to learn more about his work in Boston and elsewhere to connect people through music. A winner of the Leonard Bernstein Lifetime Achievement Award for the Elevation of Music in Society, also known as the Leblophtiums. The after parties are amazing, by the way. And the person the Boston Globe named one of the best people and ideas of 2011. It's my pleasure to welcome Maestro Thomas Wilkins. It is my pleasure to be with all of you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for being here today. And uh, we're really looking forward to uh, this conversation with you. And of course, a week of music making to come. Um, but but first, uh, you know, the three of us have at least one thing in common, and that is a shared view that young people benefit from hearing music, playing music, uh, and learning about music. Um, tell us just, just to start, why is this work so important to you? I was a, a young kid living in a housing project in Norfolk, Virginia, my hometown, to a single mother who was on welfare. And I went with my third grade class to hear what was then called the Norfolk Symphony Orchestra, uh, now called the Virginia Symphony. And I walked away from that concert realizing that I wanted to be a conductor. Um, there was something about that man on the podium and this sound world that was being introduced to me was fascinating and um, uh, apparently uh, it captured me. Uh, and I said, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to exist. And so I understand that music and, 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 and music education concerts aren't necessarily there to create another me, but they can be life-altering and life-affirming all at the same time. And, uh, and so I come at all of this my entire career from a completely different position, wanting to use music as a tool to help make people better. You know, I, I come, I mean, just for, I approach this with a similar view, and I've always said this, I said this when I was a teacher, and I say it now um, with, you know, with the orchestra, is we're not here to create the next Joshua Bell or Yo-Yo Ma or, um, you know, Michael Stern. That's, that's not our job. Our job is to create people who love music and to, right. uh, and to provide opportunities for music exploration and to find ways and different ways and varying ways of um, allowing people of all ages to connect with music at their own pace in their own way. Um, but it, it's not about creating the next superstar or the next, you know. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've said this to grownups a lot, you know, composers aren't trying to demonstrate to us how smart they are. What they're saying to us is that they're coming alongside of us to live this life. And they're happen to be, they, they happen to be giving us the gift of music in order for us to achieve that. So when we sh when Beethoven shifts from C minor to C major in his fifth symphony, and he so eloquently outlines C major at the end, 
He's saying, I want you to know that you're no longer in the world of C minor. You didn't call it C minor. You called it some sort of challenge or obstacle. And now at the end, you're calling it some sort of triumph or victory. Tchaikovsky did the same thing with his fifth symphony from the shift to E minor to E major, using the exact same music. He said, you know, no, no longer are you going to be afraid of this, but you're actually going to own it. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. I, I, I love, um, I love that idea in, in music that, you know, we don't, we can listen to it and it's, um, in a way, a, a, a reflection of, of ourselves, right? We, you know, we, we don't know what was in Beethoven's head. We don't know what was in Tchaikovsky's head, but we, we, it, it resonates with something that's already internal, right? Right. Um, so, so I'm wondering, uh, how do you how do you view this process differently, or is it different at all? You know, when you're when you're trying to introduce kids to music versus adults. Um, you know, we do so many concerts for for young people um, where we try to expose them to something new, to teach them something new, um, and we don't do that exactly in the same way for adults. Uh, yeah. Usually, sometimes, but usually not. And I I just wonder what is how is that process different for you, or is it? Yeah, no, you know, it's in a way, it's exactly the same. For example, I, I kind of joke that I don't do puppets and costumes and all that stuff because I'm, I, I'm sure that the music is perfectly capable of taking care of itself. The thing that I want to be is the, the, the conduit. I, I, you know, I don't, um, I'm not trying to be the smartest guy in the room. I'm trying to be a human. Um, and and I, want the, I want the kids to think that I'm just a friend of theirs. So I write my own shows. I do my own talking. Um, and, you, you know, my concerts are about life lessons, and we use music as a tool to teach those life, life lessons. Uh, so I'm talking about often the things that are in their everyday lives. You know, if it's a program about orchestration, it's really about community building. If it's a program about rhythm or pace in music, it's really about perseverance. Uh, during the pandemic, I did a lot of programs uh, based on what I felt kids were experiencing, you know, um, uh, one program was called So So Now What? Because kids are thinking, what's what's next? You know, do I see my friends again? Do I see my family again? Do I go back to school again? Uh, I had one program about doubt, and I, I introduced composers who experienced self-doubt. But the program was entitled, I Really Thought I Couldn't. Mm. Uh, and so um, my interaction with them uh, is completely personal. Uh, I, I don't just stand on the stage. I walk out into the audience. I interact with them face to face often, uh, and I use humor and w- when when it's necessary. Um, and in fact, I know in Boston, the players in the orchestra are the ones paying the most attention because they are also walking away with something that helps them survive or helps them thrive. I think that's something that that also signifies just a lot of. Uh, a lot of talent in in a role like yours is when you can get the orchestra to buy in yeah. to what you're saying and what you're doing as well. Because I mean, let's be honest, they do it, you know, six, seven, eight, nine times. They hear you, you know, deliver the same message, maybe in a slightly different way or tell a different right. joke or something. But um, I always find that I I feel it's as rewarding when the orchestra really buys into what we're doing on stage and really, you know, is, is coming away with something as well. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, we did, we did a program called the, the, um, uh, what was it called? The beautiful sounds of friendship. Mm. And one of the things that we did on the program was the Stalin movement, Shostakovich 10. 
at 10 o'clock in the morning, right? Yep. right? And they were, the, the BSO was totally into it because they accept the fact that together we are on a mission to help make these young people's lives better. Well, and when, you know, when else are those kids going to get to hear Shostakovich 10? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. If they're there at 10 o'clock. It's our job to play it at 10 o'clock. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I get a lot of grownups. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of my our board members come to those concerts because uh, they, they want to see the energy in that room and they're thrilled by it. Yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit about your process maybe of um, interacting with an adult audience maybe for something new that they're going to experience and do you approach it in a similar way with adults or is that do you take a take a different turn for that well uh, you know i don't treat any audience differently any of the audiences differently so i talk to the grown i talk to the kids as if we're equals equals and i talk to the grown-ups as if we're equals we're intellectually equals um uh i might use different of course i'll use different words i can use bigger words with grown-ups if I use bigger words with kids, I tell them what that is, what it is, so they learned a new word that day. Uh, but pretty much, uh, the process is exactly the same, and part of that means I'm just being me. Uh, I'm not being uh, well. I, there are times when I can be professorial. There are times when I can be anecdotal, and there are times when I can be funny. But the entire process is all about me just being me, uh, and I don't know how to be anything else but me. Uh, and I've discovered over the years that what people respond to most is genuineness. Um, and if you can genuinely suggest an idea to someone, um, uh, they, you, they, they buy in uh, pretty, pretty quickly because you're not talking over them, you're talking to them. And they respond to that uh, profoundly. And, and quite frankly, the minute you develop that level of trust, uh, they're ready to receive anything you have to offer. Musically. Mike, did you um, just one of our recent podcast guests was Matthias Pincher, and we had a long conversation about um, performing the Sounds of Polyphony by Ligeti. And I, I kind of watched that happen with the orchestra a little bit. Like, you know, there was a little hesitation, it was a little daunting kind of approaching that, that piece. And then, you know, it was exactly what you're describing. You know, there was trust, there was, you know, a, a genuine explanation and a genuine. You know, we could tell that that he was, you know, really enthusiastic about exposing even the orchestra to something new. And I don't know, Mike, how did you guys react to that? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And uh, you know, the the most important part of this for me um, is, is what you were both talking about uh, in terms of getting the orchestra uh, to buy in and to be engaged uh, behind you. Because I think, you know, one of one of the hardest things for us, uh, like. You started to say, Stephanie, was, you know, it's nine o'clock in the morning and you're playing Ruslan and Ludmilla for the 15th <laughs> time uh, for, you know, squirmy six-year-olds. Uh, it, it's, it, it can be easy to, to become disconnected from, as a player, from what's going on. Um, and I think what both of, well, I, I can't honestly say that I've seen one of uh, Thomas's shows, but what I'm sure uh, you do well and what I know Stephanie does well uh, is to is to keep us engaged in that process because I think that energy is so important. Um, and you know whether it's audience members coming to a concert to hear Ligeti or you know children coming to hear a children's concert, part of the buy-in for them I think is is to see the eighty musicians on stage as engaged as the person at the front of the stage speaking to them. And I think that's what 
what um, Matthias did really well with the Ligeti was to get us, you know, to understand the piece, to buy into his vision of the piece and to, and to pull it off. And I think that's true um, regardless of what we're playing, you know, whether it's a subscription concert or a, or a family concert or a children's concert or a whatever kind of concert. Right. But I'm, I, I want to talk a little bit too about different kinds of music because, and how they find their place on the orchestral stage. Cause you, um, you, so I have to confess, I was uh, preparing for today uh, as we're recording. It's a day or two after the Oscars. So the Oscars news was on my mind and therefore Lablaftiums. Um I had to make an acronym out of your, out of your award, but you, you received this incredible award. <laughs> you received this incredible award uh, uh, from the Longy School of Music, which is a, a a well-known um, school of music in the Boston area uh, for um, for elevating music in society, which I think is um, must be such a tremendous um, recognition of your work. And as I was reading about that, I had to think, well, when we say music, mm. what do we mean? Um, because I think there's a, a, a generally understood sense that if you're talking about an orchestra, that means Beethoven symphonies, it means Strauss tone poems, it means, you know, concertos. Um, but I find, especially in new music and in the you know conversations that we're having in the world of you know what would be considered classical music right now, those definitions are kind of becoming blurred and expanded, right? Um, so when you think about elevating music, it sounds like a stupid question, perhaps. But what broadly you know do you mean by music? Is it is it important? What what's important to elevate about music? Sound. Um, and the, the, the transformative power of sound, period. Uh, you know, I'm kind of known in, on the West Coast as uh, Mr. Versatility at the, the L.A. Phil, you know, which is where I'm headed at the end of this week, to do the music of, the film music of Terrence Blanchard. I mean, you know, music from... Really uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, but I just did a subscription in Boston, just got home, you know, uh, yesterday. Um, I had the great fortune to be very good friends with a lot of guys when I was coming up who were jazzers. And, uh, you know, and, and we sort of laugh because all of us are working. You know, I think of the Wooten brothers, Victor Wooten, who is arguably one of the best uh, jazz bass players living today. Um, um, and uh, Carter Buford, who is Dave Matthews' drummer. And um, the Wootens and I particularly... Um, spent a lot of time when I was, you know, college, post-college, sharing music. Uh, we all worked at Bush Gardens in Williamsburg together, and on payday, <laughs> uh, uh, Roy, the drummer, who was future man of uh, Baylor Fleck and the Flecktones, right? Uh, Roy and I were contemporaries, and we'd hop in my car, we'd drive to Peaches Records, you know, in, in Newport News, in Hampton, Virginia, and uh, uh, we'd split at the door. He'd go to the jazz section, I'd go to the classical section, and then we'd share over the weekend what we just bought. And so I'm playing Shostakovich and Beethoven and Brahms and Haydn and Mozart for those guys. And they're playing John, uh, John Coltrane and Miles Davis for me. And we are collectively informing each other about the world that we live in. And now today, uh, you know, I'm, I'm conducting Victor Wooten's bat, uh, j jazz uh, bass concerto around the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, Roberto Sierra's concerto for saxophones with, with uh, James Carter uh, and doing, you know, I'm, I'm going back later to L.A. to do a subscription, in fact, including the Wooten bass concerto, but I'm also doing Superman uh, at the beginning of the film, Superman at the beginning of that, of that week. Uh, 
And I think what we talk about a lot is we removed all the labels when we were growing up. So music was just music. And for me, it means that no two weeks are ever the same. And I'm equally comfortable doing a concert of all Duke Ellington as I am a concert of all Tchaikovsky or Beethoven. Um, and the, the, here's the beauty of it. If we remove the labels, no one gets left behind. Um, and so there's a, there are people groups who need to hear the orchestra. Uh, but if we limit ourselves to only one kind of music to present to them, not only do we alienate them, we also alienate that music. And then everybody gets left behind in the process. Uh, again, never worried about music's ability to take care of itself. I only want to make sure that we don't try to appear to be greater than this thing called music, uh, because that way we get in the way. Yeah, I love I love this uh, this sentence you said. If we remove the labels, nobody gets left behind, and I think that's right. I think that's a really beautiful thing, and something those of us who you know live in the, for lack of a better term, classical music world, are 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 wrestling with right now, actually, right. because I I've had so many of these conversations recently. I have to refer to you know the music that I do am trained in. And I sort of uh, recoil at the term classical music at this point, and yet I keep using it because I don't know what else to call it. And when I right. use that word, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Right. That's a, right. a big is a big discussion, I think, in a lot of places. But certainly um, in the office, is you know, there's just a constant discussion about how you know what do we call this because that's not the right that's not the right word for what we do anymore, yeah. and really hasn't been for a very long time. And maybe I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but but since we're here, you know what what do we call this? Uh, because I think you raised such an incredible um, uh, an incredible point that that we're all struggling with. Maybe you yeah. call it nothing. I don't know. Well, Mike, I'd actually like to go back to something that you said when you talked about doing Rustam Midler at nine o'clock in the morning and getting the orchestra to buy in. Uh, now, you already know what my background is and how I came to music. The thing that I determined about that, my introduction to music, is that it is indeed not only life-affirming, but it can be life-altering. So, if that's true, then it is our moral responsibility to not leave anyone behind. And they, think about it, the orchestra, by its very nature, is one of the most versatile entities on the planet. We can... We can refocus, uh, reshift ourselves or remake ourselves to become anything from, you know, a duet to a, a you know, a colossal film score uh, orchestra, uh, which means that uh, we miss an opportunity if we don't utilize our ability to transform ourselves into something that helps people get to this thing called music. Uh, and, and so on that basis alone, we, we have a lot of catch up to do. Uh, because we did, we have, we do, we have decades of not doing. You know, you think of post George Floyd and how many how, how many times now people are doing are discovering, uh, you know, William Dawson and Samuel Coleridge Taylor, um, um, you know, and and William Grant Still and and a, a host of others, and the the because we have left this music behind for so long, part of the catch up is educating the audience to the point that they understand that this is supposed to be a part of the canon. Um, and I think rather than worry about whether something is classical or not, I'd rather concentrate on whether it's classic or not. 
because if something is classic, it means that it holds the properties to withstand the test of time, which is why we still listen to Mozart and why we'll always listen to James Taylor and we'll always listen to Miles Davis and we'll always listen to Willie Nelson uh, because there is something inherent in that music that allows it to withstand the test of time. You know, so I'm loving chatting with you and hearing what you have to say because this is like where my brain lives all the time, and and there's one of there's one of me in the orchestra, you know. So it's I feel like I live kind of in a vacuum sometimes thinking about this stuff. But um, so I think that's one of the reasons why we do and we educators what we do is so critical is that. Um, you know, we talk about audience development and we talk about wanting to, you know, broaden our reach. And a lot of that focus is on people, you know, my age, like in their 40s and 50s. You know, we need to figure out how to get those people in. And that's obviously a, we, that's important. We need to do that. Um, right. And we need to figure out how to reach that, that community. But the longer, the longer game is the kids when they're three and four and continuing to make those touches and get those reaches from, you know, the time they're three to the time they come to, as a field trip when they're 10, and then they come here the orchestra with their school orchestra when they're 12, you know. But I think what's so critical about that is that children aren't as judgy as adults yeah, on right. when you introduce new things to them and you introduce new concepts. So if we... Because everything is new to a child. So right. everything we do is going to be new. So it doesn't matter what we play for them or what we do. It All it matters is that we approach it with, you know, that we're bought in. And that that goes back to that. And, you know, if we're coming, bringing you something that we're really excited about and present it in a way that's accessible, um, that's where the building is. And it can be Beethoven or it can be John Coltrane or it could be Willie Nelson, like any of that. But you're not going to experience a, the same kind of pushback when you're playing for a nine-year-old versus what, you know, maybe introducing something new to a 40-year-old, I think. And I think that's where, that's, yeah, I'm really excited about that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing that's so encouraging about kids is that they're too young to know what fear is, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, a grown-up comes into a room, they see a name on the program and they go, oh my gosh, you know, um, it, it, what, what's going to happen here? Um, or they see the, so, like the year that they were born and it's like, oh, I'm not going to like this because they were born in you right, know, the 80s. Right, right. And here's the funny thing. Um, in Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven's day, every concert was a world premiere. Right. <laughs> so. Right. Um, but I think, you know, I so I have two young kids. I have a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old and I've been working in orchestra education for 16, 17 years now. Um, and my approach to music has changed and the way that I introduce music has changed based on just living with my own children and seeing how they embrace things and, right. on, you know, how they process stuff. And what I found the most interesting, especially between the ages of my older 12 and my younger eight, my eight year old still isn't worried about what other people think or isn't worried about, you know, oh, well, did my friends like this? Because if my friends liked this, then I can like this. It's mm. she's still, you know. If she hears something, she decides for herself 100% whether or not it's good to her or she likes it or she enjoyed it. And my 12-year-old, you know, when you get into that age, it's like, well, I might like it, but what do my friends think? You know, did they did they like it? Am I allowed to say that I like it? And I think 
that's a really interesting, I mean, there's just four years difference in that. And that's a really right. interesting time frame and something that I have to think of when I'm programming music for a variety of ages, you know, how is this age group going to approach this versus, you know, somebody just a couple years older? Yeah, that's kind of why I don't hyper-intellectualize uh, my yeah. programs. Uh, sometimes, you know, we'll do uh, uh, programs with fourth and fifth graders, which is the ideal age for a mm -hmm. young people's concert. But every once in a while, there are high schoolers in the room. And what I do is I make the high schoolers my partners uh, in, in, give in giving this music to the fourth and fifth graders. Or, or you know, I, I relate to them differently during the concert. Uh, as if to say, I know you already know this, but our friends over here don't, you know. And all of a sudden, the high schoolers take ownership of being a part of the process, even though you're teaching them at the same time. And the other thing that I do is, my <laughs> I have kids too, but they're 30. <laughs> but both of my kids work with students. Um, and I will often, when I'm preparing a script, I will often ask them, what are the words that kids are using today? Yeah. Uh, and then I incorporate those words into my, um, into my script. So if I say Beethoven slaps, a high schooler sits up and goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, 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 I did a program once called, uh, in fact, it's called, it was called May I Have Your Attention, Please. And it was based on how composers get our attention before they give us the body of the work. You know, like a slow introduction or a big chord or whatever. And I had high schoolers, all high schoolers, and they, you know, high schoolers kind of dare you to entertain them. And so I, uh, I said, you know, th what this program is about, I said, but before we start, let me give you an example of one of my favorite introductions to a piece of music. And I played the opening of the Joe Walsh album, The Smoker You Get, The Player You Get, The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get, what I'm, I'm screwing up the title that right, right now, but um, uh, Tim can take care of that. Um, uh, and, and and the introduction to that album is Oh yeah Ah And I mean the kids kind of you saw them because first of all they were saying how do you know who Joe Walsh is because you're this classical guy and second of all are you out of your mind for playing this piece of music but at that moment I had them and now they're ready to hear anything that I have to say and anything that we're willing, to, that we're ready to, to play for them uh, because yeah. I, made, I made us all equals in the room. Genius. I, I, I love that. And I'm going to probably need your help understanding the uh, latest vocabulary to speak to young people. Because I, 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 I mean, I'm joking, but I, I do, I experienced this in a, in a smaller scale way. Um, you know, I teach flute lessons, not surprisingly. We all teach and one of the things that I've always been bad at and I find I only get worse at is is relating to uh, teenage females. <laughs> <laughs> Which you probably run into quite a bit in your in your lessons, yes. You know, to be totally honest, and this is not all about my, you know, awkward history as a teenager, that was true when I was their age <laughs> and and it's it's only gotten worse and you know, I say things to them and they just kind of look at me cockeyed like who is this? <laughs> strange person and what are they saying but it's you know it's true if you can if you can learn you know not only their vocabulary the music they're listening to uh you know you can connect in that way and you do you do get um a level of trust i think instantly and that's that's so important for us to remember um 
with kids and and with grownups too. I think. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit. We've been talking so much about um, people in the audience. I want to talk a little bit about the orchestra itself too, because um, I don't want to overlook the fact that you were a music director in Omaha for a very long time, and as you said yourself, you conduct um, all kinds of concerts, not just. Uh, children's concerts all over the country and all over the world. Um, and I want to talk about the the composition of the orchestra itself, uh, because we've had so many conversations uh, for years, really, and I think even more fervently recently about how, how do we... Um, how do we not leave anybody behind, uh, to use your words, in terms of the composition of the orchestra itself? You know, what, what levers can we pull... Um, to get people uh, to to explore, you know, a passion for music, to learn to play an instrument, and maybe one day, you know, have an interest in joining an orchestra, uh, because it's something it's something we really struggle with. Yeah, I feel like um, well, there's actually two questions in that in that question. Um, one of one regards how do we relate to the men and the women in the orchestra? And keep them excited and and have buy-in from them, uh, you know. And and you know, of one one of the, one of my jobs is that I teach part of the year at Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, and I tell my conductor students often, you have to realize first and foremost that we are leaders of men and women who happen to be musicians, not the other way around. So that when I approach the orchestra, I'm approaching them as human beings. They walk into the room with their own aspirations, their own sense of fear, their own longings, their own sense of an aesthetic, um, and their own daily challenges. Uh, and I have to treat them with a certain level of respect uh, and dignity, uh, even though it's my responsibility to, at the end of the day, say, no, I think it's Caribbean and not Caribbean, right? Uh, but in the process, uh, you know, I was just in Orlando and the orchestra was blow, blown away that on the first day of rehearsal, I was calling them by their first name. Um, they recognized right away that I recognized that they were human beings and not just there to serve me because they're not there to serve me. We are there to serve the music. And so I, 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 I've talked about this in speeches before. Leadership is less about instruction and more about invitation. And we are as leaders, inviting people to, to join me in becoming a part of something that's bigger than all of us. And if you walk into the room and you pretend to be the most important person in the space, you don't get to invite anybody to anything except to despise the fact that you're there. Um, and so the, the minute that we do that, now we can start talking about what is our job this week? What is our job in this rehearsal? Um, so that's that's one part of it is... Uh, how a leader relates to uh, the people that he or she has been given stewardship of. Um, and, you know, I, I'm at the age now where I'm going to a lot of orchestras where I'm running into people who played in my youth orchestra or they were in an all-state orchestra when I conducted it. And they are literally saying to me that um, without, this, without patting myself on the back, they're saying that their experience with me that weekend or that week or that year uh, is why they're musicians in the first place. And I would dare say that it has nothing to do with me trying to be impressive. 
uh, in their lives, but more uh, invitational. Yeah, I, just so everyone understands a, a part of what you said, you know, when, when a guest conductor comes, uh, they don't know you, you don't really know them. More often than not, if they want to address a player in the orchestra, it's hard to learn 80 names all at once. They say, uh, flute, you played all the wrong notes. Please right. don't do that. <laughs> boy, boy, you got some scars, don't you? <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a long career. <laughs> uh, and, and I have to say, it is, it is um, both surprising and, and quite, um, I don't know what, what word to use, quite inviting, you know, when, when a conductor addresses you by your name, yeah. uh, depending on what they say after your name, it can, be, <laughs> it can add again to the intimidation and the scar tissue. But that's—I know that's not what you're talking about, right? Um, uh, but yeah, it's 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 such a it's such an important thing, and I think I think you know musicians who have been doing this for a long time, you almost forget about it because you you just sort of get used to that rather impersonal dynamic, right? Um, but it's it's so true what you said. And why would you want an impersonal dynamic in such an intimate environment, right? Yes. Why would you? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, in the first rehearsal, when I get there, I'm going to call you Bob. That's, that's absolutely fine. And I will respond politely anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Will you please? Just, yeah. no, call, call him a, diff- a different name every time every you talk time. to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, that's a great idea. <laughs> This this leads me to a, it's a funny story that I'll share and Tim can cut it out if it's really silly. But um, my first experiences here in the symphony this is going back 16 years. I had my first Nutcracker rehearsal, uh, and we have a, a wonderful conductor uh, with the ballet. And the previous uh, principal flute before me uh, was was male as well. And so I think uh, I think she didn't realize there was a new principal flute. And at some point, um, at some point in the rehearsal, she she wanted to address me about something. Undoubtedly, I was playing all the wrong notes again, or I was playing the snowflakes when I should have been playing the sugar plums. Who knows? Uh, but she called me. Uh, she called me Nestor, uh, who was the who was my predecessor. I, I know Nestor. Uh, who I yes, I believe you would know. <laughs> and um, and she said it two or three times, and it took me a minute to process what was going on because, of course, I did not respond to the name Nestor because my name is <laughs> Nestor. Uh, and so, because of that experience, I learned that whatever you call me, I will answer to. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thomas, you need to make sure you call him Nestor at some point. I feel, yes. <laughs> you can call me Bob, call me Nestor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that so much. So, um, you know, I want to talk about at least, well, at least one other thing, but one other thing. Um, so I read that you also uh, serve as the chair of the Raymond James Charitable Endowment Fund. Right. Uh, and you're a national ambassador for the nonprofit World Pediatric Project. Right. Uh, which provides uh, children throughout Central America and the, did you say you prefer Caribbean or Caribbean? Caribbean? Uh, I, think, I think they're not even sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, in any event, it... It provides uh, children with <laughs> critical surgical and uh, and diagnostic care, and and neither of these things uh, sound at least superficially related to music in any direct way. So I'm really right. curious for you to talk about uh, that work and how how your your experience and your expertise contributes to it. Um, you know, I I always believe that um, 
a music director, for example, or a conductor in a town needs to be a part of the fabric of the town, not just presenting concerts. Uh, just like an orchestra does, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely essential that the orchestra does more than just give concerts in the concert hall, uh, you know, to go out in the community, uh, to have players go to hospice locations and, and play and, 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 you know, and play their instruments or, 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 or whatever the case may be. As I said, we are one of the most, um, um, changeable ensembles there is in, in existence, right? So we can use that uh, to be a part of the, the life and the fabric of the community. Uh, so that's the first thing, is, is, is that, that kind of connect, con- connectivity with the community. But a couple things happen. Um, when, you, when we go out into the community, the community gets to know who we are. They get to know that we exist uh, as an orchestra, you know, talk about being relevant to it, to, 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 the, to the life of a certain community. Uh, that's, that's a, that's just an extra benefit. You know, I actually gave the commencement address at an elementary school because, uh, the art teacher at that school was married to my associate principal cellist. And, uh, and she goes, I know he'll do it. If he's free, I know he'll do it. Uh, that was delightful. That had nothing to do with me being a, a, at the orchestra, uh, a, 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 being a, an orchestra conductor. Um, the other part of the equation is I have access to people because of my position uh, that some institutions don't have access to. You know, I was on the on the board of a, a, a private public health facility in the inner city uh, in Omaha. They can't call Susie Buffett and 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 have have her return their phone calls. I can. Um, um, and therefore, I become a partner with other institutions uh, in the town to help them grow. Um, that expands what we say when we say an orchestra is to the benefit of the community that we serve. It just broadens it in fresh ways that people didn't think about. You know, um, I've played, I, I played golf with people on the golf course. Um, you know, I, I had, a, I had a, a fund in Omaha called Thomas's Promises. And it was created when one of my players came to me to ask if I knew of any sort of scholarships that there were, because she had a kid who was, uh, you know, living with her uh, only with her mother, but now she's going to go spend the summer with her dad. And she wanted to make sure that the kid didn't drop off the map musically. And she said, is there some scholarship that you know about to a music camp? Because if, if she puts her viola down, uh, for the summer, I don't think she's ever going to come back to it. And I said, "Well, why don't we?" Uh, I said, I'll, "I'll I'll do a little research, but if we can't find anything, I'll pay for it." And that started me thinking. Wait a minute, I could start a fund that is just sit, it's just a bucket of money sitting somewhere. That if someone comes up to me and says, "We need this, we need an instrument, or we need this," I can do it. Not not create an application process or anything like that. Just a bucket of money. Mm. And so I would, I would be on the golf course with, you know, the CEO of Union Pacific Railroad or the CFO of Mutual of Omaha. And I'd stand over a putt and say, you know, if I make this putt, you got to give me a hundred bucks for the Thomas's Promises Fund. <laughs> and if I miss this putt, I'll give you a hundred bucks for whatever fund you want, to, you know. Um, and so or I would give a speech to a, uh, you know, Kiwanis or whatever, and they want to pay me a fee. I said, well, don't pay me a fee, but stick that $500 in Thomas's Promises Fund. 
Um, and so that's just one tiny little way that, again, has less to, has almost nothing to do with me being a conductor or me being a musician or me being a part of the orchestra, but rather me and us being part of the life and the fabric of the community that we serve. Well, and I think you being an incredible human being probably goes <laughs> along with that as well. That's really, <laughs> really amazing. Really, really inspiring too. But it's fun too, right? <laughs> How could it not be, right? That's right. just, oh, <laughs> wow. I, I think that's that's just a beautiful story. And, um, you know, reminds us, we, we talk uh, a lot about, you know, serving a community with music. And, and I think, as you said, it's as much about uh, connecting people to help each other uh, and and music has put you in a position to do that right. in a way. Um, and I think, you know, that's absolutely an essential part of that. It's not it's not just about performing in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Um, when you said I keep coming back to when when you said, you know, we are a really versatile group. We can be a duo or we can play movie scores and. Um, you know, that is something that we've talked about often on this podcast is that we, throughout COVID, you know, we kind of had to reinvent some things mm-hmm. and redo some things. And so we, um, before the pandemic, had a had a pretty robust community connections program where we would do things in, you know, retirement homes and um, in hospitals and in schools. Um, but since COVID, you know, we had to really kind of think about how we, how we could reach the community. And um, it's kind of expanded in that but i all that to say as soon as we um uh, wrap up today's podcast i'm heading to an elementary school in downtown kansas city with a duo of violinists where we're going to hang out and you know talk about music but really more just just have a good time and make sure that those kids you know they see our faces and they see that we're actually people who um you know have a really cool job and have a lot of fun doing it too and i think that's that's something we can we can really we have to embrace more yeah. and we're trying to. Yeah. You know, if there's to your point, uh, once we figured out how to give music to the, to the, our community do, do, during COVID, all of us can share stories of how relieved audience members were and how grateful they were. Uh, you know, we went back, uh, in Boston, once we got permission to go back, get back together, first rehearsal, we were all in tears. Um, and we, we did it to, to, to record a capture of, you know, uh, oh, yeah, um, oh, Mahler, I can't forget what else was on. But just being able to be in the room together to make music again was such a almost religious experience for us. Um, and it's and, you know, when you when you, you know, in Omaha, we never stopped performing. We just limited the number of performances and reduced the hall to 25 percent uh, with social distancing. But sure enough. The first day I walked out on stage, the audience just burst out into applause. Uh, not because it was me, but because it was we uh, together in that room. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can remember, you know, here too, we didn't, uh, well, we didn't play for quite a long time. And then we played a bit socially distanced without audience. And then, um, and then we brought socially distanced audience in. And even just to play, you know, face-to-face for anyone inside oh. of a building. I mean, we've been playing outdoors 
for a long period. Uh, well, there was a period of time where Mike's Mike's woodwind quintet would rehearse in the open air parking garage. Yeah, uh, that right, was that right. was their rehearsal space for months right. because you right. know what? we we couldn't be inside. Right, uh, who's Mike? Oh, oh, um, oh you mean uh, she Nestor. means Bob? Bob. Nestor. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <that's> my bad. <laughs> Well, well that, played. That was that was good. That was good. Well, um, I, this has been such a tremendous conversation, uh, and I feel like we could probably sit here and talk about this for another two or three hours. But, but as you um, take a sip of body armor, it reminds me <laughs> of uh, one of this is this is a unpaid plug for body armor listeners. Right, right. <laughs> Mail those checks to the Kansas City Symphony. Mail those, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Um, I'm reminded that that we have a couple of pieces of official business. Uh, if you if you read your contract closely in the fine print, it says there are um, a couple of questions that were required by law to ask you. Uh-oh. Uh, and they're they're quite they're quite probing. Um, so uh, of course, our podcast is called Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. So uh, we yeah. always ask our guests, our listeners know this. What is your favorite beverage? If you were to walk into a bar with Beethoven. Or even just yourself. What what would be your beverage of choice? Alcoholic, non-alcoholic, coffee, tea, water, body armor, whatever it is. Electrolytes. Electrolytes. And the um and the second part of this question is if you were sitting having this beverage with Beethoven, what would you want to ask Mr. Beethoven? What would be your question to him? Um I have of late been an old fashioned guy. I, I used to be a Maker's Mark Manhattan guy. And then my associate principal, Chellis, the same guy whose wife got me to, to, to uh, speak at her elementary school, um, he, uh, he, he introduced me to the old-fashioned, and I've become the old-fashioned guy. Um, um, and if I'm sitting down with Beethoven, the first thing I'm going to say to him is that I remember the day that I jumped off the fence and determined, in my, for me, that he was the greatest composer who ever lived. And that was during... Um, uh, the film The King's Speech, when the king finally gets a chance to speak and they're playing the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Yep. Uh, and, oh my gosh, I looked at my daughters who were in elementary school at the time and I said, okay, I'm off the fence. Uh, you know, Beethoven's the greatest composer who ever lived. Um, I think the question that I would ask him is, um, boy, uh, how did he manage after having been a composer who always wore his heart on his sleeve, how did he manage to write such an uplifting, hopeful symphony with that seventh symphony, in spite of the fact that his life was in the toilet? Because that was not the Beethoven that we were accustomed to. This Beethoven was losing his hearing for sure. His brother was in a debtor's prison. His girlfriend had broken up with him. And yet he write a symphony that I think barely as it was called the apotheosis of the dance. Uh, where did he find uh, the energy and the muster to be so hopeful in the midst of such despair? I, I love that. And Beethoven 7 is absolutely my favorite of his symphonies. And I, I remember vividly uh, seeing that film for the first time, The King's Speech. Uh, and I just think it's, it's probably the greatest cinematic use of his music oh, ever. Totally. It's, it's incredible. 
And the other the other piece, which probably slides under the radar that I recall is in that film, is the um, I think it's the introduction to the first movement of the Mozart clarinet concerto. Yes. And, and what I remember is it's funny. Uh, is that I don't think you ever hear the clarinet solo in the film. You only hmm. hear <laughs> the strings playing. Yeah. <laughs> That's but true. anyway, I love I love that film, um, and I love uh, Beethoven Seven, of course. Um, so the final thing that uh, is required of us today is that uh, many many of our listeners know uh, we often give some recommended listening at the end of the show. And uh, since we've been having this amazing conversation about elevating music in society and different means of connecting people with music, I thought I would propose a very broad but hopefully uh, fun list of recommended listening. Uh, it's not really a list as such. It's just a suggestion from each of us. Um, so uh, to wrap up today, we're going to recommend some music that may connect with you in a new or unexpected way. And since I'm proposing this silly idea, I'll go first. So I, <laughs> I recently came across uh, this incredible album uh, performed, composed by, composed and performed by uh, a flutist, composer, vocalist, uh, artist extraordinaire named uh, Natalie Joachim. And I apologize to the universe and to Natalie if I'm not pronouncing her last name well, but I think that's close. Uh, and she she uh, created this incredible album with the uh, spectral string quartet called Fan Daiti. Another couple of words I'm undoubtedly pronouncing poorly, but they translate uh, to women of Haiti. Uh, and the, the mm. words are in, in Haitian Creole. And this, this album uh, is just an incredible composition that she created, which draws from songs and words from women of Haiti. She's a, a Haitian American uh born in Brooklyn. Um, and um, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it except to say that you have to listen to it and it's, it's transformational and it's so incredibly vivid. And it's, I think, a perfect example um, of what uh, Thomas was talking about earlier. Uh, if you don't put a label on it, you leave no one behind because I can't possibly yeah. put a label on mm. on this music and yet it's performed by a string quartet, which performs Beethoven, which performs... You know all all the things that you associate with a string quartet. Uh, Natalie herself is a trained, quote unquote, classical flute player, same as mm. I am. Although I assure you that I cannot do anything that she does uh, in this album in terms of sound, in terms of uh, her uh, singing. It's it's all and certainly not composition. It's just incredible. So that's my mm. that's my recommended listening for the day. I can recommend something, Mike. Please. I don't know if I followed the the assignment correctly, but I'll tell you just when we're talking about elevating music and broad There's no wrong answer. There's here. no wrong answers. Good. So mine um we just came off of a a few weeks of doing link up. Thomas, have you performed Carnegie's link up programs before? Uh, I, I haven't performed it personally, but we had it in Omaha. Yeah. What I'm recommending is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, <laughs> um, the the final Ode to Joy movement. And I'm doing that because, um, you know, we just, we came off of a run of link-up concerts where we had about 6,000 students over the run. Um, you know, normally you hear Beethoven 9 with a huge chorus. Um, I experienced Beethoven 9's Ode to Joy with 6,000 
broken up over, over a few days, sixth thousand, fourth and fifth graders. Um, mm. And you want to talk like just kind of changing the way you listen to listen to something. Um, I think that that really did it for me. Just, uh, you know, hearing those kids singing that 200 plus year old melody is um, was was just really cool. And it also reminded me that Mike um, took that actually that version of Ode to Joy to Lansing Correctional Facility. Was that right? That's right. Mm. Yeah. And had a, a group like an octet perform Beethoven 9 and have the inmates sing the lyrics wow. along with the group. And I think, you know, for, for someone to write something like that, that can transcend, you know, can, can, you can hear it in a concert hall with adults, with children, or in a prison auditorium, um, you know, common space, I think is just uh, something worth listening to again. Mm. Boy, that's cool. Um, uh, well, the list is long, but I, I what pops to my head uh, first and foremost is uh, James Taylor's latest album, which is actually probably two years old now. Uh, it's called American Standard. And James Taylor, by the way, is, I think everybody knows this, he's my all-time favorite artist in any genre. Mm. Um, and I finally got to work with him uh, two years ago at the Kennedy Center Honors, and uh, I was just like a little kid. But um, um, this American Standard is, <clears throat> excuse me, music from the Great American Songbook. And he puts his own spin on this, and it is delicious. I mean, it is absolutely delicious. Um, and so, um, uh, by far, that's that's my that's my top recommendation. Do you know what's neat about that? My son and I were just in the grocery store, and on one of like you know where they have all the, you know, like National Enquirer and magazines on who's you know yes what right. struggles all the celebrities are going through. Um, there was a picture of on one of them uh, with the name James Taylor. I don't know what the magazine was about, what it was, but my son said, "Who is James Taylor?" Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, sweetie. So we got in the car, and that's the album that I put on. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> this was just last week, so that's great. Wow. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. This has been a super conversation. Thank you, Thomas, for, for hanging with us today. And I can't yeah. wait to see you um, uh, when you're here in Kansas City. And, you know, it's the Midwest, so it'll feel a little bit like coming back home, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to some serious barbecue because absolutely. Uh, I've 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 heard you guys have good barbecue there, so um, you know it's a thing. We'll hook you up. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> well, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Also, remember that Thomas will lead the Kansas City Symphony March 31st through April 2nd in Hellsburg Hall at the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts in a program of Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, and Nielsen's Inextinguishable Symphony. Tickets are available at kcsymphony.org or by calling the box office. Keep tuning in to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar more this season for great chats with guest conductors Teddy Abrams, Valentina Pelegi, our own Michael Stern, and a few surprise guests still remain this season. All that and more on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 